This week, we're really excited to share our new sponsor with you because they provide a high-quality product and also give back to the community. Fruit of the Bean provides high-quality coffee, beans or ground, your choice, and 10% of the money they make goes toward helping orphans and victims of sex trafficking. And so we're really happy we found Fruit of the Bean because coffee is something I personally rely on every day, especially for having the energy to make this podcast while working full-time. So when I found Fruit of the Bean and saw that I could help support orphans and victims of sex trafficking while buying something essential to my everyday life, I couldn't pass up the opportunity. It's also a high quality coffee. They actually, to preserve freshness, don't even roast the beans until after you order. They have a variety of great coffee beans from all over the world, as well as my personal favorite, hazelnut. Fruit of the Bean partners with people who are making a difference in the lives of real victims. We've talked about sex trafficking before and what a huge problem it is, but as much as awareness of the issue can help us watch for signs of sex traffickers, we can also help the people who are doing what they can to rescue victims of sex trafficking. So if you love great coffee and you want to help make a difference while buying something you love and possibly need, visit fruitofthebean.com. And our listeners can get 25% off by using the code VOICE at checkout. That's V-O-I-C-E at fruitofthebean.com. We hope that you give them a try because by supporting them and buying coffee through them, you're supporting us and what we do and also helping out with their mission to help orphans and victims of sex trafficking. So visit the link in our show notes, use our code VOICE, and get 25% off your order at fruitofthebean.com. This episode of Voice of the Victim podcast is sponsored by Podcorn, an awesome marketplace for podcasters to find sponsors. And... We'll talk more about it later. Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible. But if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. My name's Ryan. And I'm Rosie. How are you doing, Rosie? You seem chipper. <laughs> I'm super excited about my life. I just got off the horn with my new boss. Off the horn? The horn, dude. The oh, horn. the horn. <laughs> and I got a new job, and I can't believe it, and I'm psyched, and I was laying on the floor yelling and screaming in joy. I'm really it. happy for you. Thank you. I am so excited about it. I can't wait. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we're both kind of thinking about making changes, maybe cutting back a little bit and making more time for the podcast. So that's pretty exciting. But as you know, this is a part two of Katie Beer's story. So if you haven't heard part one yet, go listen to that. It's episode 90. Um, So last week we mentioned our source is the book Buried Memories. 
And one perspective in the book is from a reporter named Carolyn Gusoff. So we're going to be referring to Carolyn throughout this episode because she dug up a lot of the information in this episode through interviews with people involved, and it's in her book. So again, we highly recommend this book, Buried Memories. It's extremely in-depth, and mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit more about it later. But let's get back into the story. When we last left off, Katie had just been reported missing from the Spaceplex. Within minutes, swarms of police officers were at the Spaceplex Arcade and oh, I can't remember how that city Nesconset. Nesconset, New York. Nesconset? No. Oh, Nesconset. Is it Nesconset? Yeah, like because Wisconsin? when I was listening to the book, I thought they said Wisconsin. Uh-huh. And you but were they like, said Nesconset. Okay. They searched all the grounds around the stucco building, diving through the blue dumpsters and looking underneath them. They walked into the woods around the building, looking for any trace of the girl who seemed to have just run away. The manager of Spaceplex told Carolyn that none of the security or staff noticed anything strange happening that night. Just that John Esposito had come up to one of the, one of the managers frantically and said, I can't find this little girl. They tried paging her over the intercom, but she never showed up. So, they called the police. And of course, the police questioned John Esposito because he was the last person that she was seen with. He was cooperative with them. He told them that he had given her $5 to go to exchange for tokens. And that was the last time that he saw her. He told them that he had searched the premises for her, but she was nowhere to be found. So then he talked to management. The obvious next place to look would, in my opinion, be Sal Incolari. I mean, like we talked about last week, this man was awaiting trial for the rape of this nine-year-old girl. And she was the only witness to his abuse, at least the only one willing to talk at this point. Hmm. And as we know, he was out on bail when she was when she right. disappeared. So, so that would be a super you know, yeah, the suspect you that you would, would think. look at. But Sal, accompanied by his lawyers, told Carolyn that he didn't trust Marilyn Beers and that her tears and pleas for help seemed fake to him. He emphasized that he had never trusted her, adding that he believed that she had no love for Katie. And it's worth mentioning that Sal and Linda were in a fierce custody battle with Marilyn because, like we mentioned last week, Earlier that year, Marilyn had taken Katie away from them and filed the sex abuse charges against they Sal. They actually thought they had a chance in getting custody? Well, I don't know what they thought. Hmm. But like we talked about last week, these people are not living in the same universe as <laughs> right. most people. Interestingly, Sal also commented on John Esposito. He told Carolyn that he has no problem with John Esposito and that he doesn't think John would be capable of such a horrendous act. It almost makes you wonder, what do you mean by horrendous act? Like, what do you know? Hey, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, because no one really knows what happened to her. But anyway, continue. When he was directly asked what he thought had happened to Katie, he said, I don't know, who would hurt a little girl? Oh my gosh. And when I read that, I was like, uh, you, duh. That, yeah, like, are you, are you kidding? Are you joking? Oh my gosh. 
So the next day, her story went public, and Rosie, will you read the police press release from that? Sure. It says, The Suffolk, Suffolk County Police Department is asking the public for their assistance in locating Katie Beers, a nine-year-old Bayshore resident missing under circumstances evincing an abduction. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Okay, I was waiting for you to correct me. <laughs> it, I guess it just means circumstances that seem like it would the, they're an abduction. Okay, that would make sense. Katie was last seen on Monday, December 28th at approximately 4.30 p.m. at the Spaceplex Family Center, Route 25, Nesconset. 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 She is a white female, four feet tall, 50 pounds, light complexion, brown eyes, with straight, dirty blonde hair. They must have meant dirty blonde, like the hair color. Yeah. She had... That's what it says. I know, but like it could be like dirty, like actually dirty. Oh. Or dirty blonde. You know what I mean? True, yeah. She had a small hole in her right cheek from minor surgery. When last seen, Katie was wearing a dungaree skirt white shirt with black Scotty dogs and black boots. Anyone with information concerning the whereabouts of Katie Beers can contact the fourth squad detectives or the juvenile slash missing person section. So based on what we know, it kind of seems like she ran away and we couldn't blame her if she did. Her life was absolutely miserable. But it also mentioned in that release that she had a hole in her cheek. Um... It says it was for minor surgery, but the real story is, I guess there was some kind of blemish on her cheek, and her mom, Marilyn, thought it was a pimple, and Linda thought it was a wart. So Linda tried to burn it off with salicylic acid, and Marilyn squeezed it until it bled, and between both of those, it resulted in a literal hole in Katie's cheek. So not only did she have a shaved head because of the lice, but oh my goodness, she also had a hole in her face, all because of the neglect of the adults in her life. So she has good reasons to run away. Mm-hmm. Katie's disappearance became a headline, and every media outlet was covering it. So neighbors and other people in the community started coming forward with accounts about Katie's childhood, about the things we discussed last week. Mm-hmm. One of Marilyn Beer's neighbors was a young mother, and she told Carolyn about a time when Katie was talking to the woman's daughter. The father wasn't in the girl's life, and Katie asked her, Why don't you see your daddy? And the girl replied, Because I don't. <laughs> I like this girl. Yeah. <laughs> but Katie asked her, Does he touch you in a, any sort of way? And she replied, No. Then Katie turned to her seriously and said, don't ever let a man hurt you, because they hurt you a lot. Wow. Yeah, so this is a huge red flag. And, I mean, obviously something for all of us to keep in mind. But this mother didn't say anything about it until she was talking to Carolyn. Now, looking back in retrospect, it does stand out. Yeah, a lot. And sadly, there were multiple missed opportunities to help Katie... Suffolk County Child Protective Services had actually been to the Ingleary home, and they were yelled at and chased out by Linda. Yeah, so that's a huge red flag. I mean, oh, go ahead. Linda's character 
from what is in the book is so disgusting. Psychotic? Yeah. There was also the fact that she missed school all the time. And when she was there, she was disheveled and dirty. People working at the stores that she would visit to do Linda's shopping also noticed that she was really dirty and seemed to crave attention. Yeah, these are the people Katie would see when she went to get do Linda's shopping. Mm-hmm. And you know, she, she had little friendships with them because she literally was like a sponge for love, you know? And they would, like, give her a little bits of love, you know? Like, yeah. comb her hair and try to warm your, you know, yeah, that's wash right. her up a little bit. It's so strange to me that they didn't say anything or because they obviously noticed they talked about noticing it yeah and this is why we think it's so important to talk about these things and have them in the back of our minds because when we see stuff like this we want those alarms to go off in our head Uh, we want to do what we can to help if we have the opportunity like this you know right so we don't want these things to happen and just uh, I'm sure it's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, we want those alarms to go off. There was one other lead that Carolyn discovered. A man said he had a valuable clue and got a bunch of media ready to document his lead. He brought them to his answering machine and hit play. It was the sound of a short gasp, and that was it. He said his niece was Katie's friend, and possibly she had given Katie his number. Yeah. Okay. That's a stretch. And even if it was Katie, the call was so short, it really had nothing to offer. So this is a dead end. I feel like that's just a grab for a limelight. Yeah, kind of seems like it. So this case has so many dead ends. And they just kept leaning, learning more and more about how terrible her home life was. Just with what we've shared so far, it seems very likely to be a runaway gone wrong. Especially if she was just trying to get away from a man her mother didn't want her to be around. Despite having so many reasons to run away, there was one thing that eliminated that as a possibility. At 5.06 p.m., the night Katie went missing... Linda Ingleary's phone rang, but it ended up going to the answering machine. A chilling message was left by the voice of a little girl. Through sobs and tears, it said, Please, I've been kidnapped by a man with a knife. Oh my God, he's coming back. So that's terrifying. The FBI was given the recording, and they were able to determine that this was definitely the voice of Katie Beers. They were able to trace the phone call to a payphone booth at the Amoco gas station. They moved all the coins and the phone itself and took it as evidence for fingerprint analysis, hoping they could find something to tell them where Katie was. So this brings the heat on their two suspects, Sal and Hilary, the monster awaiting trial for Katie's abuse, and John Esposito, the man who was last seen with Katie. Despite Marilyn Beer's adamantly banning contact with both of these men for Katie. Both of the men seemed genuinely concerned about Katie's safety, but investigators really latched on to John Esposito. They had a strange feeling about him, and he had been with her when she disappeared. But Linda's mother, Anne, told Carolyn that it had to be someone Katie didn't know 
because she referred to him as, quote, a man with a knife. That's a good point. I mean, why would she call Big John, a man who she was very familiar with and had spent a lot of time with, a man with a knife? That is a good point. But on the same token, it also eliminates Sal, unless one of them took her but wore a disguise, which is also possible. That is super possible. Despite the horrible events, which you would think would unite all the people who cared about Katie, the custody battle continued to rage on between the Ingleries and Marilyn, fighting over who should have custody if and when she returned. Which is ridiculous. Come yeah, on. You'd think they'd be more concerned about finding her at this point. And what leg do Ingleries have to stand on? Sal abused Katie. She was in Linda's care when she went missing. So what the heck? But Linda actually produced a note from Katie 10 days after Katie had been missing. (laughs) Now this was odd because police had searched the Ingleries' home thoroughly several times, but Linda claimed a psychic had found the note inside a book in Katie's dresser drawer. Hmm. It was written on construction paper in black marker, and it said, To Aunt Linda, I love you. You are my favorite person in the world, but I am stuck in them middle. middle. Oh, in the middle of you and Marilyn. You and I have a lot of good memories to share, but you got to understand I am only 10 years old, so it is very hard for me to decide who I want to live with because I have lived with you both. Love always, Catherine. P.S. I love you. Yeah, by the way, she wanted to be called Catherine. I think we mentioned that last week. I think so, too. But, um... One other thing I didn't mention. They're from Long Island. Long Island. Long Island. Okay. So in the book... (laughs) Sorry, that was really random. That is random. Like in the book, whenever they would read quotes from Katie or Linda or... They would say Long Island in the beginning? No, they would read it in like a Long Island accent. So I should have done that. No. Good, because I I can't. I don't think so. I don't know how. But I thought it was funny that they did in the book. Because you can tell it's the same person reading the whole time. But she did a Long Island accent for all the people when she read quotes. Thank you for that meaningless fact. (laughs) Well, just know that these people are from Long Island. (laughs) Okay, that's the only thing you can say with that fake accent. Probably. Anyway... Marilyn believed that the note was fake because Katie never referred to her to her mother by name. And Marilyn said that Katie called her, quote-unquote, Mwami. Like that? Mwami? <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to go down this rabbit hole okay. anymore. Also, the fact that the police never found a note in a book in a dresser. Mm-hmm. Like, you'd think that's the first place they'd look. They always look in those... Under the mattress. Where you hide stuff. In the underwear drawer. But it just shows how petty all these adults are. You know, the girl is missing, and they're still fighting and trying to um, create their own character witness, I guess, with this note, Mm -hmm. which may or may not be fake. Right. So we mentioned earlier that Katie knew John Esposito well, so now we're going to go into more detail about how he came into the lives of Katie and her brother John. Right. One day, their mother, Marilyn, gave a taxi ride to a woman who was going on and on about her son. She said her son was part of the Big Brothers program, 
and figuring that John needed a male figure in his life, Marilyn got in contact with him. The woman's son was John Esposito. And may I say that Marilyn is really getting to know quite a number of people as a taxi driver. I know. That's what I was just going to say, too. (laughs) Um, Maybe I should be an Uber driver. Well, maybe not if this is the consequences. (laughs) (laughs) So last week we mentioned Marilyn saw an ad, but we kind of need to retcon that because I guess technically it was true. The ad was in the form of his mother. (laughs) It's Um, a stretch. I mean, she was advertising her son's business. (laughs) Anyway, I just had to tie up that loose end. Big John would take little John on play dates and over to his house to play video games. As Katie got older, she would also take along. Almost every time John saw Katie, he'd give her a new toy and a hug. Now, John's house was like a toy store, a candy shop, and an amusement park all in one. He had a basketball hoop, a punching bag, a ping pong table, and even arcade games, along with Sega, Nintendo, and board games. So this place was a kid's dream. I mean, I would have loved it there as a kid. But, like we mentioned last week, Big John was accused by Little John of molestation, and Marilyn severed ties. And it turns out, John Esposito never actually worked for the Big Brother program. (laughs) He was a fraud. In fact, he even had a criminal past. Yikes. John Esposito had been arrested for trying to pull a 12-year-old boy into his car, but he made a plea deal which got the case removed from public records. It only came up again when he was being investigated for Katie's disappearance. But John was also very cooperative. Even though police were putting the pressure on him, he actually offered to let a policeman be stationed in his home to eliminate any suspicions they had. Yeah, so it's tough. Um, He's playing it so cool he seems to be innocent he's coming across as very confident in this situation at some point the fbi came to the conclusion that katie wasn't actually at the payphone when the message was left they determined that her voice was played from a tape because there wasn't any background noise by cars rushing by instead it sounded like it was recorded in a soundproof room but i don't know How they could determine that? Because even if it was played off a tape, which was recorded in a soundproof room, the call still came from that phone booth, and it would still have the background noise of that area, you know? So that doesn't make sense to me, but what do I know? I guess I do see where you're coming from. I didn't really think about it that way. Because it was still played from that booth. Right. But anyway. Don't overthink that. Yeah, they know more than I do. Now, at this point, the investigation had hit a brick wall. But there was a new piece of evidence that police had found while searching John Esposito's home. Right. While searching John Esposito's bedroom, they found a pocketbook and a hat. The pocketbook belonged to Katie, and the hat was a blossom hat that Katie was wearing on her birthday. John told police that she had handed these items to him while they were at Spaceplex. So... I guess that's a pretty reasonable excuse, but Katie's mother couldn't believe that she would have taken her hat off at Spaceplex. Like we mentioned before, she had recently gotten her head shaved because of lice, and Mm -hmm. she was self-conscious about it. 
which is why she was wearing the hat in the first place. So Marilyn just couldn't buy that she took the hat off in public at Spaceplex. So after this, suspicion was heavy on John Esposito, but he wasn't talking, and this was the only evidence they had against him. They had searched his home and garage multiple times. They monitored his phone and camped in front of his house, watching his movements. And like we mentioned, he offered to have them stay in his house, so he was confident. It seemed like the mystery would never be solved. But he did something unexpected. On the afternoon of January 13th, 1993, John Esposito summoned his family to meet with him and his lawyers. His twin brother, Ronnie, was there. And Ronnie's the one that John had blamed for that incident with the 12-year-old boy. Oh, okay. Remember he blamed his twin brother? Right. Ronnie's wife, Joyce, and his brother, Pat's widow, Joan, were also there. He said there was something he needed to tell them. They sat in suspense as his lawyer, Sidney Simon, prodded him, saying, What is it, John? Then... He shocked everyone and said, I know where Katie is. So we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor, Podcorn. Our sponsor for this episode is one we're really excited to talk about because they are the ones who have made it possible for us to have sponsors. We're just a couple of inexperienced kids making a podcast about something we really care about, and we never really knew if we'd be able to figure out how to get sponsors. But thankfully, the awesome people over at Podcorn have helped us out a lot with that. As podcasters, we have a message we really care about that we want to get out there, but it takes a lot of work and time. Sponsors help us dedicate more time to working on the podcast so we can do the best we possibly can sharing these stories. Podcorn is a really simple and easy-to-use marketplace that connects podcasters directly to amazing sponsorship opportunities like host-read ads, interview segments, reviews, topical discussions, and more. And I love how easily we can learn about the business and whether it would be a good fit, and then send them a proposal for a specific date. There's no middleman, so podcasters can choose what their specific rate is while also making better quality ads because we can directly collaborate with the sponsors. Personally, I prefer when ad breaks don't change the tone of the episode, and that's why I love being able to get in touch with the brands themselves. You don't need to give up creative control or rights to your podcast to use Podcorn. And the people that work there are always willing to help and work with you to make the process painless. Seriously, they're really laid back and let creators do what they feel is best for their audience while also securing the funds before we start on the ads and making sure we get paid when we're done. The mission of Podcorn is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize their hard work. And we know podcasters work hard. So if you're a podcaster of any size, Click the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing opportunities to find your own sponsors. And now back to our story. So now we're going to take you back to the night Katie went missing and share her perspective. The day Linda's mother, Ann Butler, came to Marilyn's house was December 26, 1992. She showed up out of the blue because Marilyn didn't have a telephone. Katie came out to say hi, and Anne asked her if she wanted to go see Aunt Linda for her 10th birthday, which was only four days away. Katie really didn't want to go because she had been Linda and Sal's slave for so many years. 
Marilyn had Katie leave the room so the adults could talk, and Anne convinced Marilyn to let her take Katie. Marilyn agreed but emphasized that Katie was not to have any contact with Sal Ingleri or John Esposito. Anne promised, and Marilyn reiterated the conditions to Katie. So Marilyn was very clear on this. Right. The next day, when John showed up with the gift, Katie was shocked. He told her that he would be back the next day, but Katie told Linda she wasn't allowed to see John. Linda just shrugged it off and said, it's fine. He's a nice person. He's coming. We won't tell Marilyn. So complete disregard for Katie's safety and the wishes of her real mother. John showed up the next day, sat at the table, and asked to take Katie to Spaceplex. Linda agreed without hesitation. Again, shocking. Katie leaned over to Linda and reminded her that this wasn't right, and her mother made her swear that she wouldn't go anywhere with Big John. But Linda wagged her finger in Katie's face and told her that she was going with Big John. So this had to be so confusing for Katie, because the adults in her life, this little girl's life, are so divided and dysfunctional. Like, what is she supposed to do? Exactly. You can't blame her if the adults are telling her what to do. Mm-hmm. So, she got in Sal's Nissan pickup truck. He took her to 7-Eleven for a slushie. Then, when they were back in the car, he informed her that he was taking her to Toys R Us to get a new Home Alone video game. And Katie protested this, saying she didn't want the game because she knew that it was the opposite direction from Spaceplex. Hmm. And it was also right around the corner from John's house. But John insisted and drove to Toys R Us. But after that, he didn't take them to Spaceplex. He brought her to his house to play the new video game. She tried to get him to take her to Spaceplex, reminding him that she didn't want to play the game. But again, she was ignored, just like every other time she tried to speak up in her life. He brought her up to his bedroom and got the game set up for her, because it was the only room in the house with a TV. She sat on his bare mattress and played the game. It's weird, but it had always been set up this way. When he would have her and her brother over to play games, they'd actually be in his bedroom because that's where the TV was, and the only place to sit was his bed, which had no sheets or blankets on it. Gross. Yeah, it's creepy. She played the game against her will as John bustled around the house and other rooms, and she didn't know what he was doing. But when he came back, she saw the look in his eyes, and it was unlike anything she'd seen before. His eyes weren't soft and kind like they usually were. They were glazed over, and he looked mean and disconnected from reality. He sat on the bed behind her and started rubbing her thigh, saying, I'm not going to hurt you, Katie. Then he put one hand over her mouth and the other hand on her waist and hoisted her up onto his lap. Then he slid his finger under her skirt and started to penetrate her with his rough, sandpaper-like fingers. She started kicking and trying to scream, but he was covering her mouth and squeezing her hard, sapping her energy. Then he picked her up and carried her downstairs and into his office, a room that the kids were never allowed to be in before. He threw her on the floor and locked the door behind them. 
he walked over to a wooden bookcase. He started emptying out the bookcase and unscrewing the metal hooks inside. He grabbed the middle shelf and pulled on it. Then the whole bookcase slid out, away from the wall. Behind it was a small rectangular hole in the wall, like a closet, built under a staircase with a slanted ceiling. And at this point, Katie was sobbing and hyperventilating because this day just keeps getting worse for her, as if her life wasn't hard enough already. He entered the small closet-like room, rolled up a rug on the floor, then another layer of carpet padding, revealing a square concrete slab that looked like it was cut from the foundation of the house. He used a system of metal poles and dumbbells to hoist the concrete slab open. And as he was doing this, Katie was scanning the room, looking for a way to get out, and she saw a phone on his desk, and she snuck over there quietly to try to call 911, and she made it. And someone answered, and she was whispering as softly as she could that she was on Saxon Avenue. But before the person could respond, John snuck up behind her, yanked the phone away, and threw her across the room like a rag doll, telling her not to touch the phone again. She landed against a wall with exposed nails and started bleeding. But he cranked the hinge slab up the rest of the way and forced her into the closet. He yelled at her to get down the effing hole. But she said, no, I don't want to. What is it? She's obviously super terrified at this point. I can't even imagine being a child and experiencing this from an adult. Especially one I wasn't even supposed to be with. But now she's alone with him, trapped in his house, and he's making her go down a dark hole with a concrete slab on top. Hmm. He lost his patience and picked her up again, throwing her into the hole. He made her crawl down a dark tunnel. Then he made his way around her and started unscrewing something. Then he made her jump down into a chamber. It was the size of a closet, and there was a box elevated off of the floor about the size of a coffin, padlocked shut. There was a toilet in the corner with a black plastic bag lining it, and there were two wooden shelves. One had a small TV with closed circuit footage of the driveway. Yellow soundproofing material and cork covered the walls. And if you Google inside Katie Beer's box, you'll find a little diagram that shows the dimensions and layout of the space. It was so claustrophobic and mm. tiny. He opened the padlock on the coffin box and told her to get in. It was as wide as a coffin, but a little taller. There was a tiny TV in there with reception. Then there was a thin camping mattress, a pillow, and a blanket, and some 101 Dalmatian pajamas. She asked him if he had been planning to kidnap her, and he said yes, for a while now. <laughs> she asked when she was going home, and he told her, This is your new home now. You're going to live here. Can you imagine? I cannot imagine this situation ever happening. It just Ugh. is terrifying. He left for a minute to get a can of soda, some candy bars, and a tape recorder. He forced her to record the words from the phone call that we talked about earlier. 
He left the room so there wouldn't be any noise from him. So when she recorded it, she left a long pause at the end and then whispered, Big John took me. He has me at his house. She was trying everything she could to survive. John returned, seeming unconcerned, and took the recorder, rewound it, and listened back. But when he heard the end of her message, he smacked her. And this really shocked her, too. She had never been smacked by him like this before. Even though he had just been throwing her around and shoved her down into a hole, there's something more personal about getting smacked in the face that's just really hurtful, you know? Mm-hmm. He forced her to re-record it as he stood over her. And after he was satisfied with it, she asked how long he was going to keep her. And he said, forever. Oof. So, this was a rude awakening for Katie. Up until now, she heard things about Big John molesting Little John, but he had never actually hurt her personally. Now she's finding out that he's keeping her in a dungeon, and there's no end in sight for her. He then asked Katie Katie to pose for a picture and pretend that she was sleeping. She asked him why, and he told her it was so the police would think she was dead and stop looking for her. Wow, that's blunt. Yeah, it is. But it also shows how dumb he is, even though he thinks he's clever. He wants to show Katie how smart he is by revealing his plan to make police think she's dead, but he's actually proving how stupid he is because now she knows his plan. Right. Now she's going to make the connection that if she poses for this picture or ever falls asleep, she'll never be found. Mm Mm-hmm. Plus, would that really make the police stop looking for her if they saw a picture of her dead? I don't think so. Right. Katie refused to pose for the picture, so he ordered her back into the box and shut her into it. And there was a chain attached to the wall with a padlock on it and a contraption on the wall to chain her up by the neck. And then there were handcuffs attached to the wall. It, uh, It was not a comfortable place for anyone. Once she heard the drill finish screwing the compartment shut, she started kicking on the door of her box. She kicked for hours, losing track of time because there was no sunlight or clocks. Finally, the door busted open and she slid out and saw that he had wedged a two-by-four against the door of the box to get it to stay shut. And she had broken it in half. Wow, that's a lot of dedication. Yeah, seriously. For a nine-year-old girl, most likely with malnutrition because of her terrible living situation, to bust a two-by-four, I probably couldn't even do that now. (laughs) While she was in there, she noticed some keys on one of the shelves, and she grabbed them and snuck them under the pillow of the mattress. Right as she did that, she heard the drilling again, and knew that he was coming. He returned and saw the 2 by 4 broken. Now, Katie expected him to freak out again, but this time, he replied calmly. It was like the old Big John was back. And she actually described him as having a split personality. He was either calm and acted sweet, or he was just completely desensitized and sadistic. He seemed nervous and preoccupied when he returned, and he told her he had just gone to Spaceplex to, quote, look for her, then had the manager call the police. 
So now things are getting real for John because the police are involved and the weight of the situ- the weight of the situation is sinking in on him. Mhm. She told John she wanted to sleep so he left, but she didn't actually sleep because she didn't want him to get that picture. The next time John came down, he acted like a gentleman and asked her if she needed anything. She asked for another blanket because she was shivering and he gave it to her. He asked Katie if she'd ever had sex before, and she told him some details about what had happened with Sal. John smirked with a sick satisfaction when he heard about it and said, Oh, so you are experienced. He told her to change into a nightgown he had brought down for her. She said she'd change later, but he grabbed her by the arm and started tearing her clothes off, saying he was going to pleasure her. So just then, we see his demeanor snap, and why Katie believes he had a split personality. Mm, Definitely. To me, it seems like he pretends to be really sweet to manipulate her, and then snaps when he doesn't get what he wants. Mm. He had her stand on a crate and started putting his finger inside of her again. After he was done, he changed back to Big John and told her to lay on the floor and pretend she was dead. Again, she refused. So, I mean, she saw that as Big John trying to kill her in everyone else's eyes. He'd force her back into the coffin and chain her up by the neck. But she had those hidden keys, and she was able to let herself out when he wasn't there. But she didn't want him to know she had the keys, so she still couldn't use the toilet in the bigger room or he would know. Pretty much daily, he'd come down in his sadistic mood, then he'd rape her, and his mood would switch back to normal. Just strange. It's not strange, I guess it makes sense, but it's just hard to comprehend. Yeah, so needless to say, this was terrible for her. Now one day, when Katie was locked up, she heard the drill and knew that John was coming, but this time he was talking to someone else. And she knew that John really didn't have any friends, and if anyone would be friends with him, they were probably just as sick and twisted as he is. So she started to panic because she figured he was bringing his friends down to have their way with her. John came down, followed by a couple of men in suits. Katie started to panic, but they told her that she was safe now and that they were police. But Katie was skeptical. John had tested her in the past to see if he could trust her, so Katie assumed that this was probably a test as well. She complied with the men, but tried to pretend everything was fine. She crawled up the hole, and another man in a police officer uniform helped her up. But she was still suspicious. And that's fair. This guy went to such great lengths to create this dungeon. Of course he's capable of an elaborate plan like this to test her. You know, maybe he was testing to see if he could trust her to be out of the hole. So she didn't want to mess that up. And throughout this whole ordeal, she was very clever and cautious. Even though he tried to manipulate her, she was the one manipulating him. Katie had constantly asked him questions about the future, about having kids and about being free. He would tell her that she'd have his kids and she said that made her sad. She was able to get her kidnapper and rapist to feel bad for her, 
and he actually did turn himself in. The police were all over his house, and they finally took her to safety after 13 days in captivity. (sighs) While Katie was in her captivity, she refused to fall asleep all 13 days, because she was afraid that if she ever did, John would get that photo of her looking dead and send it to the police. Then people would stop looking for her. So she never slept while in captivity. Can you imagine? No. She must have been so exhausted. When she had to relieve herself, she didn't have a bathroom to go to. There was that little commode lined with a black trash bag in the larger room of the dungeon, but remember, she was chained up by the neck inside a coffin-shaped box, and John didn't know that she had that secret key. And again, she didn't want to blow her cover, so she used the method that he provided her, and it was really nasty. She was forced to go in a tiny space between the mattress and the wall, and she had nothing to clean herself up with, so she had to use a tiny area at the bottom of her blanket. Yeah, and throughout this time as well, she hadn't been able to shower, Mm -hmm. so she was just stuck in her own waist. What a smart little girl, though, to know that she couldn't use that toilet. Yeah. Yeah. The police recovered tapes that had hours of Katie screaming and crying to get out, then John coming down and talking to her. Also, there were police interviews. And the book goes into a lot of detail about these tapes. So again, go listen to it or read it, because it's really interesting and very detailed. Now, of course, once Katie was freed, the custody battle raged on. Katie... But officials were not sure that either option would be good for Katie. So she ended up being adopted by foster parents who specifically requested her because they wanted to protect her. They became really great parents to her. They took her to therapy, and when one therapist didn't work out, they brought her to another one, and they kept trying until they found a good fit. Just the fact that they were still in that custody battle after she was found, proves that neither situation was going to be a good one. Right. And she had those charges against Sal, who should mention, too, that Sal was taken to trial, but even though he had admitted to touching Katie in the past, Mm -hmm. when he went to trial after she was found, he denied everything Hmm. again. So it took no responsibility for his actions. Wow. <laughs> well, now we're going to talk about Katie's life these days, past from all of this terrible stuff. Because of the way that she was forced to relieve herself, now she always needs to know that there's a real bathroom nearby. Well, I can't imagine. That yeah. would be the same way. Uh-huh. And she said even though she's endured much worse in her life, the way she had to relieve herself was one of the most traumatizing and shameful things she ever had to do. While she was writing her book, she felt embarrassed just writing that part down. But obviously she did what she had to do to survive, and no one that matters would think she's gross because of that. She also hates getting into any car with a man because of what Sal would force her to do on their car rides together. Remember that? Now both Sal and John ended up going to prison... And Sal actually got out for a while, but then he went back to prison for something else. 
And so both of these men actually ended up dying behind bars since then. Sal died of a massive heart attack in February of 2009. And I don't want to be happy about someone's death, but the things he put Katie through for several years from the time she was three years old are just absolutely disgusting and evil. He was such a creep and disgusting, so I don't feel bad for him. Right. Mm-mm. And then in September of 2013, John Esposito was found dead in his prison cell, apparently of natural causes. So, that's pretty crazy. Just this <laughs> yes. whole story is insane. Now, a few episodes back in episode 88, Rosie talked about Kintsugi and the value of learning and growing from trauma and ultimately becoming a stronger person. Uh, everyone's different and has a unique set of challenges, but I thought Katie Beers was the perfect story to tell after we discussed something like Kintsugi because her perspective is really interesting and inspiring. Mm -hmm. Katie says that if she hadn't been abducted, she wouldn't be where she is today. And she's very happy with where she ended up. She has two very loving parents now, and she's married with children. She believes that if she wouldn't have been kidnapped, her childhood would have continued to be terrible. She was sexually, physically, emotionally, and verbally abused by the adults in her life. But after escaping her captivity, she was fostered by loving parents and begun a long journey of therapy. And these foster parents did it right, like we mentioned. They got her into therapy, and it really worked for her. Katie's therapist said that the women in her life neglected her and didn't protect her, and the men in her life had abused her. So at the time, her level of trust was very, very low. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to see that even after everything she went through, she was still able to form a close bond with a man and get married, and even feel love for her foster dad who showed her how a real man should treat his daughter. Katie recalls her life with her foster parents as being awesome. They let her be the kid she was never able to be. Linda had required Katie to do all the work around the house, but her foster parents just let her play and be a kid. All she was required to do was her homework. Katie is now a functioning member of society, and in 2013, she was working a job in insurance sales. Now, she is an author of the best-selling book, Buried Memories, which was our source for a lot of the information in the story. But there was a lot more that we didn't share, and we highly recommend reading it. She's also an inspirational speaker, a mother of two children, a wife, and of course, a survivor. So, really good story. Um, it's interesting. This guy, John Esposito, kind of saw himself as a hero to Katie. And, <laughs> oh boy. I mean, like we mentioned, Katie herself acknowledges that it was good for her to get out of the situation she was in. But, you know, John saw himself as her knight in shining armor, kind of. What? Like a hero. So what do you think of that, Rosie? I think No. Yeah. Like, what? No, no, no. <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. I mean, my thoughts are, if he really had her best interest at heart, he wouldn't have treated her so terribly. He wouldn't have locked her in a dungeon 
and force her to sit in her own waist. And he wouldn't have raped her. Mm-hmm. If he really wanted to help, he should have contacted authorities about her situation. At the time, I mean, who knows if they would have given as much attention to her living situation if her case wasn't so famous. But nothing can justify what John did to her. It's just so unfortunate how many people saw her struggling but didn't step in to help. Like the young mom we talked about earlier who uh, talked to the reporter about Katie always... Um, or talking to her daughter about how men always try to hurt little girls, you right? know? Right, That's yes. a red flag. Mm-hmm. But no one did anything to step in and help Katie. And the one person who did, did it in such a psychotic way. So, yeah, it's just a really weird case, but we thought it was really inspirational and mm-hmm. also interesting story. Right. You know? No, but we highly recommend you get the book, Buried Memories, because there's so much more detail beyond what we've shared. Mm-hmm. Yes, so what do you think, Rosie? Should we get into the reviews and then call it a night? Yeah, so I can make some mac and cheese? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I will share the first review that we got, and it is entitled Compassionate. It's a five-star review from Lulz7. In the U.S. of A. It says, I listen to a lot of true crime, and these two are by far the most empathetic and compassionate in telling of the... (laughs) In telling... In their telling of these victim stories. Subscribed. (laughs) Tongue twister. I am in a panic. Thank you so much, Lulz7. The second one is also short and sweet from Angeby... 86 from the u.s it's called love this it says i love listening to this podcast ryan and rosie are such an awesome duo i literally binged all episodes lol thank you guys thank you so much and and baby or however you pronounce that um <laughs> we appreciate both of those so much and yeah do we have anything else to talk about before we wrap her up I am just so flabbergasted by the news of my job. Oh, good. That I need to have some victory mac. Victory mac and cheese. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> um, I need to take some apple cider vinegar because I have some serious heartburn. And Beto needs his ball back because right. we took it as hostage. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. You can uh, follow us on Instagram at VOV Podcast. And email us at vovpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, but I don't know. I don't know what Twitter is. Um, and then, <laughs> Me neither. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. So, again, we want to thank Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. That's really awesome. Thank you, Podcorn. And if you're a podcaster, definitely go check them out. They're very cool very helpful very laid back very easy to work with so all right well well thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week bye